Well, we're in week two of a sermon series on Christian maturity, and I want to start by telling you a story about a friend of mine who a couple of years ago decided to enter the, uh, the Honolulu Marathon and, and run the race. Okay, not an easy feat. Um, he, mean, he meant to train for the, the race. It's a long race, 26 miles, right? So he meant to train for it, um, but things got busy, life got in the way, and he realized, oh my gosh, I've only got about a month before the race, and he hadn't been consistently training. So frantically, he tried to prep for the race. He ran a lot of miles. So the day of the race comes, he gets to the starting line, you know, and, and goes. And first couple of miles, he's okay. By mile 10 or so, he's feeling pretty queasy. By mile two, he wants to barf. By, by mile 15, he does barf. By mile 17, he's getting cramps all over. By mile 20, he ends up in a fetal position on the side of the road with an in a daze, crying, Mama, Mama, Mama. And the good news is that he did finish the race, but it was quite an ordeal. Why do I share that story with you? Um, it's because anything that requires endurance, like a marathon, also requires training. And I think the Christian life is very similar, similar because let's face it, the Christian life is not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. Uh, it, if you're really living as a follower of Christ, there will be hard times. I'm just telling you, that's, that's part of the deal. Um, but but it's worth it because there's a prize at the end, you know. Uh, and, but it, to get there, you know, to, to engage in this process in a meaningful way and to run, you know, to run the race well, you need to train for it. You need to be intentional. So we've been in this series of Christian maturity, and last week we looked at what is Christian maturity. And we saw that Christian maturity is being childlike without being childish, meaning Childlike in the sense of claiming your status as a son or daughter of God. That position, that status, and your relationship with God. But at the same time, getting rid of childish, a childish attitude, okay? the immaturity that comes with being a child. This week, we take up the question of, how do I become more mature as a Christian? And to get some idea of that, uh, to get some clues, uh, let's look at the Bible. Uh, Apostle Paul gives us a pretty useful analogy for understanding the process of gaining Christian maturity. And he says this in Philippians 3, uh, 14 to 16. He says, I, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul compares the Christian life to a race, not unlike the marathon that my friend ran. Um, it's a long-distance race. It's a race of endurance, but, at, but there's a prize at the end. And the prize that Paul's talking about is grasping the fullness of our relationship with Jesus. Okay? Just coming into that fullness to, to everything it is that we have in Christ. That's the prize we get at the end. 
And I think that's a useful analogy for maturity because you really need to train for anything that requires endurance, like a long distance race, like that marathon that my friend ran, and for the Christian life. Now, the thing about training programs is that there are different components to it. You know, you could do a lot of different exercises and drills uh, to train for something. Speed drills, for example, you know, endurance drills. Um, but all the drills in the world won't help if you have bad habits. You need basic good habits if you want to succeed and move ahead. For example, if you're training for any kind of physical activity, uh, like a race or athletics, you need to get enough sleep. You need good nutrition. Those are just basics. Uh, it doesn't matter that you can run, you know, you do drills on, on running quickly. If you don't have the nutrition, if you don't have the sleep, you'll get tired, you'll get sickly. And I think that's also true of developing Christian maturity. There are many techniques for growing as a Christian. Go to your local Christian bookstore, like Logos, and you'll find so many books on technique. But if you really want to make strides, you need good habits. And today, that's what we'll be looking at. Three good habits for developing Christian maturity. Okay. So the first habit is to renew your mind. To renew your mind. Uh, there's a TV show called Extreme Makeover Home Edition. How many of you have watched it? Yeah? Okay. It's a TV show where a needy family basically gets a complete renovation of their house. Uh, you have contractors and suppliers donating the services and their materials uh, to give a needy family uh, not a new house, but a, a made-up house, a, a, a newly made-up house, you know, in the interior and landscaping and, and whatnot. So let me ask you this. How many of you think that Extreme Makeover Home Edition is a good analogy uh, for what it means to become a Christian? Okay. How many say it's, it's a good analogy? Yes, yes, one. We have one taker. Okay, two. All right, a couple of good takers. Okay. okay, how many of you say no, it's, it's, not a, it's not a good analogy? Okay, a couple of others. All right. All right. You know, I, I think it's a good start. I think it's a good start as an analogy because becoming a Christian does change a lot of things in you, but I don't think it goes far enough. I don't think the analogy goes far enough because becoming a Christian isn't about rearranging the furniture in your house. It's not even about a major renovation of the interior of your house. It's more of a demolition and a rebuild. And what I mean by that is becoming a Christian is so much more than just you know, buying into a new belief system. Um, it, something radical happens when you become a Christian. You become a completely new person, and you're welcomed into a new family. And the Bible uses various me metaphors uh, to, to illustrate this point. We see that in John 3. What does Jesus say about becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of Him? He says you need to be, what, born again. That's pretty radical. Even the Pharisee that he was talking to, Nicodemus, didn't get it. It's like, what do you mean? I'm old. How can I be born again? Uh, in Romans 8.15, Paul says, we receive the spirit of adoption as sons. Okay, now that's pretty radical because being adopted into a new family means what? Leaving behind your old family and coming into a new one. That's a radical shift. So becoming a Christian turns your life completely 
upside down, it really gives you a new life. It's radical. But the problem is, even though we become a new person when we become, when we become a Christian, um, we, we tend to continue to think the way we used to. Okay? Uh, our thinking, there's a lag sometimes between the way we think and who we really are. And that's why we need to renew our mind. And Paul puts it this way in Ephesians uh, 4, 22 to 24. He says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to, be put, to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's break that down. There's two parts to this, right? There's first putting off your old self, okay? Literally in the Greek, to cast away, to lay down. It's like I put down the old Elijah and I put it here. Stay there. The second part is to put on the new self. Okay, Elijah 2.0, put it on, right? Okay, put on a new self and put off the old self. Or put off the old self and put on the old self. Okay, why, why put off the old self? Why, why, do we need to, why do we need to do that? Because it comes with baggage. Okay, there's baggage that comes with our old self. What are, what's some of that, what are some of those, uh, uh, those undesirable luggage items, if you will? Oh, well, look at the, look at the passage. Deceitful desires is one of them. Okay? Our thinking is corrupted by our sinful nature. The way we think, the way we look at the world is corrupted by sin. Okay? We, the things we want aren't the things we should want. That's one. Another is belief in lies. Okay? It's, it's deceitful desires, not just desires, but deceitful. We buy into lies about who we are, who people are, who God is. You know, it's cor- our, our old self is corrupted by lies. So we need to get rid of that, our old identity. Okay? You don't, you don't want to carry around your old identity. It's like if you change your name, what do you do? You go and you get a new ID card. You don't carry around your old ID card anymore and present it, you know, to uh, the places that need it because that's not who you are anymore. Your name changed. Um, or, or another way of thinking about it is, you know, there's a phenomenon um, for, for those, uh, for families that adopt children, especially from uh, third world countries, uh, what they notice is that their, their children engage in behavior that is a relic of their old families. They might, for example, hoard food or, or steal or overeat because where they came from, their, their, their birth family, food was scarce. You know, you don't know where your next meal is. You better eat as much as you can. Um, they don't realize that in the new family, that's not a problem. You don't need to continue doing the things you used to do. Okay. So getting rid of the old identity and getting rid of baggage is really important. And one piece of baggage I think particularly important to address and, and get rid of is the way our earthly parents treated us. When I say God is your father, for some of us, that's not a very cool analogy. You know, because our parents are so influential in shaping who we are. But parents are humans, and they make mistakes. And they can hurt us in the way they make mistakes. They may not mean to. They may, you know, sometimes, you know, parents do it, do intentional things, but sometimes they don't mean to. And they they end up hurting us and scarring us. Um, And if we carry our old baggage, we, we, 
we look at God in the way that we looked at our, our earthly parents. But God isn't like that. Okay? He's the perfect father. And we have to be careful not to let our bad experiences with our earthly parents taint our relationship with God. You know, my, my experience with this is that I, I grew up mostly without a dad. My, my dad died when I was six. And it's not like I had a very bad experience with my dad. It's just that he wasn't around. You know, I, I didn't hate him. I don't have much of a recollection of him, honestly. I don't have, I have a couple of good memories. I don't have really any bad memories. And for the longest time, I felt like that's just normal. You know, it didn't, I didn't feel like it affected me very much. I just went on with life. But as I got older, I began to appreciate I realized that it was affecting me. Um, and there were a couple of telltale signs. One was that I, I noticed that I tended to get lonely. Okay? I felt like I was alone in the world. I felt like there was no one around to teach me things, uh, to mentor me, to teach me basic life skills that a son would learn from his father. And as a result of that, I felt like I had to fend for myself. You know, I had to look out for myself. Um, and that led to insecurity about myself. Um, it also led to a drive to prove myself. Um, it, I worked hard. I think that was one of the main reasons I worked so hard in school and in developing a career. But it was a very lonely life. And I isolated myself because when you feel insecure about yourself, you don't feel comfortable around others. You know, you don't want to put yourself out there because I'm missing something. I don't want you to see that scar. Um, so I, I noticed these things about myself. The other thing I noticed was that I, I was relating to God like a servant, like a good servant. And what I, meant by, what I mean by that is I tried my hardest to serve God well. I did a lot of things for God. I tried to be a good Christian. I tried to not sin. But, you, but if you ever try doing that with all your might, it's hard, and you fail. And when you fail, you feel guilt. And eventually you beat yourself up. You're wondering, why, God? Why are you doing this, this to me? I've been faithful to you. Why isn't it easier? Why am I not getting the things I see others getting in life? There's a sense of entitlement. And there were two things that helped me to see God as my father. One was the concept of adoption. The beautiful thing about adoption is that you get new parents. The father I never had is not the father that God is. He's a new father. He's a good father. And I began to realize that throughout my life, God was shaping me. He was coaching me. He was mentoring me. He was putting me in situations that I need to be in to grow and develop. He had a plan for my life. The second thing that, I, that really shifted my mind about my relationship with God as a son and he as a father was the idea of sonship versus servanthood. In the prodigal son parable, the prodigal son wants to go back to the father and say, please accept me as not a son, a servant because he's afraid that God, I'm not God, his father will disown him, that he doesn't deserve to be a son anymore. And his idea is, look, if I earn my way, I can be part of the family again. But what does the father do? 
No, you're not a servant. You're my son. Come back. The difference is huge. A servant is a hired gun. A servant is paid in wages. A son gets an inheritance. A servant needs to earn his or her way to get pay, to get a salary. Again, the son gets the inheritance without doing a simple, anything, just by virtue of being a son. And so the, the son doesn't need to look to the father and say, look, I did this, I did this very well. Reward me, please. Okay? Actually, if you look at the older brother, that's what he does. The son just realizes, I am the son. I've got the inheritance coming to me. <laughs> the father loves me just because I am a son. So that really changed my attitude towards God, and I started to relate to him knowing that I'm secure as a son, that I am free to serve him not because I'm trying to earn his grace, but because I have his grace, because I have his favor. Now, another breakthrough um, was realizing that my identity as a son comes from Christ because Christ is the new self I need to put on. After I put off stuff, I need to put on a new identity, and it's, it's really Christ. Christian maturity, like we said last week, is about becoming childlike, right? The grasping that position of sonship or daughtership. Well, let me ask you, who's the most perfect child of God? Who's the most perfect child of God? Give you one guess. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the most perfect son of God. So if you want to be the perfect son of God, what do you want to do when you mature? Become like Christ. We mature when we put on Christ, when we become more and more like Christ. And Paul says this in Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me putting it on, right? Putting Christ on. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay? The more we become like Christ, the more our minds get renewed. And the renewal of the mind has two effects. There's an inward effect and there's an outward effect. The inward is it affects our self-identity. Uh, we realize now our self-worth and what it's based on. We're valuable in God's eyes. But there's also an outward effect because, it, but because a, a transformation of our identity affects how we relate to others. You know, because look, if I'm valuable just because of how God relates to me, what about my neighbor? What's her value? Well, her value is also based on how much God loves her. That changes things, doesn't it? Jesus didn't just die for me, he died for her as well. And so how are we supposed to relate to this person who's valuable like that? We're supposed to value them as God values them. You know, so that's why we're supposed to forgive them and honor them and respect them and be patient with them. In our old life, in our old way of thinking, they don't deserve all that. But under the new system of value, they do deserve it because God says they do. God views them that way, just like he viewed us. 
So renewal of the mind is key to Christian maturity because it helps us see ourselves differently and also helps us see our neighbor, our world differently. Okay. All right, now there's a second habit I, w- I want to talk about, and, and that I'm going to title it Get With the Program. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that, you know, good parents actively teach their kids and, and ha- they, they actively bring them up, right, in, in their education, uh, in their moral training, uh, in their manners even. Um, they know their kids well. They, they know what can motivate them. They know how far to push them. Um, they just know their kids well enough to actively cultivate them. And our Heavenly Father also has a program uh, for our spiritual development. He knows us the best. He actually knows us better than our earthly parents, better than we know ourselves even. And He has a program, a training program for us. The question is, are you cooperating with His program or resisting it? (laughs) Okay, Do you get with the program? Now, we cooperate with Him when we're sensitive to the ways that He's leading us. We become familiar with the ways He's shaping us and the different ways He trains us. That's how we cooperate. And He does that in so many different ways. Okay? Start with the basics. A regular diet of Scripture. Reading your Bible daily. You know, if you've gone to church any number of years, you'll hear that again and again. But it's so true. You know, reading the Word praying, spiritual disciplines like fasting, that's like breathing. You need to breathe to do anything basic, right? So you need that. That's, that's a basic way God leads us. Um, another way He leads us is through circumstances. Um, he will put us into situations, and we may not realize at the moment that He's doing it to, to build us up, but if we stop and we, and we just reflect on it, we'll realize that the things going on around us no accident. Okay? In the Hebrew language, there is no word for coincidence. Pretty neat, huh? Because the idea that there's accidents happen just does not enter into their worldview. Everything happens for a reason. And not just in a kind of, you know, out in the ether, ambiguous, amorphous way. Everything happens for a reason as ordained by God. God has an intentional plan. Another tool that God uses to shape us, and it's a really important one, is adversity. There's a, there's a common misconception that when you become a Christian, bad things don't happen to you. That happy days are here, and I can live carefree, and God will protect me from everything. No, <laughs> not true at all. Not true at all. Let's take a look at Romans 8.28. It says, And we know that in the good things, God works for the good of those who love Him. Did I read that right? No, no, no. What does it say? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. All things, the good and the bad things. Okay. And so how do we cooperate with God's plan? We leverage adversity. We use it to our advantage, okay? We leverage adversity instead of running away from it uh, or getting angry at God for allowing us to suffer through it. When we face adversity, we need to be asking God, what are you doing here? Okay, because adversity 
is kind of like a chisel that chips away at our old self to reveal Christ in us. It's kind of painful to get chiseled away at, but so necessary, right? So ask God when adversity strikes, what's going on here? Why? Okay, a last, the last habit, the third habit I want to share with you is to seek wisdom. Seek wisdom. Now, there's an obvious link between um, wisdom and maturity. Uh, as the saying goes, the older you get, the wiser you get, right? And there's some truth to that. Uh, the idea is that as we get older, we collect more experiences, um, more, basically more data that allows us to process the world and understand it and say, look, this works and that doesn't. Okay, so there's some truth to the saying, uh, but that's not exactly the way spiritual maturity works. You can be a Christian for a very long time and still be spiritually immature. Okay? And that's because wisdom is not necessarily tied to how long you are a Christian. The link between wisdom and spirituality is the fear of the Lord. Let's take a look at Proverbs 9.10, which is, I think, a beautiful, profound passage. We've looked at this in the sermon series on Proverbs and wisdom, but it sums it up so well. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Okay? Now, let's start with the fear of the Lord. When we, when we talk about the fear of the Lord here, we're not saying a fear in the sense of quaking in your boots, worried that God will strike you dead with lightning. That's not the kind of fear we're referring to. It's not a horrifying fear. We're referring to a reverent fear, okay? a, fear of, a fear in the sense of giving honor, always wanting to honor someone. It's kind of like if you have a dignitary in your presence, you're always concerned about making sure that that person gets the honor that he or she is due. That's the fear of the Lord. And the reverence for God that we should be cultivating is so key to developing Christian maturity for a couple of reasons. One is that it leads to an appreciation of His ways. Okay? When we fear the Lord, we appreciate the goodness of God, the beauty of God, the genius of His design. It's also key to, to seeing God a God without boundaries. Because a God that you put in a box is not a God that you can revere. If you can control God, what good is God? You don't want a God that you can control. He's too weak for you. You want an untamed wild God. That's the kind of God you want to revere. And then having a fear, a healthy fear of the Lord, motivates us to change because if you always want a desire to please God, you will do what it takes. You will train to get there, okay? You will train to, to please God. So let me break this verse down kind of this way with a little diagram. Um, the fear of the Lord, reverence, leads to knowledge of God, who He is, what He likes, what He doesn't like, you know, what makes Him tick, and that leads to wisdom, which is insight, okay, and appreciation of His ways. And the more we grow in wisdom, the more mature we get. Fear of the Lord is essential to Christian maturity. So how do we get it? How do we cultivate a fear of the Lord? I can identify at least two ingredients that, um, that are key to getting a healthy, cultivating a, a healthy fear of the Lord. You need an accurate view of God, 
and you need friendship with God. Okay? Accurate view of God and friendship with God. And let me share with you my, my personal journey in um, coming to a fear of the Lord. Uh, my mom is probably one of the most influential people in my life in terms of shaping my, my spirituality and my, um, my Christian walk. And my mom became a Christian at an early age, uh, at 13. Uh, she, she knew that Jesus was the one for her, but that came at a cost because she came under a lot of persecution from her family, came from a communist family who don't believe in God very much. So she clung on to Jesus, and she's always had a very close relationship with God, and that's filtered on to her kids. And so I would see, I would look, I would observe the way mom, you know, related to God. And it was just a very interesting way. I mean, for me, it was just the way mom went about her business. But now looking back, it was, it was kind of neat. Uh, one thing she would do is give me commentary. <laughs> commentary about the world, commentary about people's decisions. I know all moms do that, right? Um, but she would do it based on what she's hearing from the Lord. She would say, like, you know, this person made this decision, and, you know, God's really not very happy about that. He's, uh, she, he's kind of grieved by that. And, and not, not in the sense of, oh, she, he's going to hell. <laughs> you know? Not in a judgmental way, but in the sense of, I, God, I, I'm talking to God, and he doesn't feel cool about that. Okay. Um, at the same time, she would tell me about how God would help her with the most mundane things. Like, I lost my keys the other day, and God said, well, did you look at this drawer? And I looked, and lo and behold, there was the keys. Okay, so how does this teach me to fear the Lord? Well, it taught me that, that the God that my mom knew matched up with the God of the Bible. Because this God has a personality. He's got feelings. He grieves over decisions. If we read the book of the prophets, the prophet books, for example, we see God grieving over his people over their stupidity, over the rebellion. This is a God who feels. Okay? He sees what we do and he reacts. He's not just a God that's high and above and removed. But at the same time, I saw that the God that my mom was relating to is loving and involved with us. He's intimate. He's a friend. And it was the combination of these two things that produced reverence in me. Because, you know, you can't honor, you can't revere a mythical person. You know? I learned that the God of the Bible actually exists. You also can't revere someone you don't respect. But the God I saw was a friend. You know, he's the God of the universe. But he takes time to help mom find her keys. I mean, what kind of God is that? <laughs> and this helped me to see God as real and at the same time, a God I can have a relationship with. Here's the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not someone to be trifled with. He's an awesome God, and he deserves devotion. There's a line from the, from the song, the second song that we sang this morning that I love. Uh, the song is, Holy, Jesus, You Are. And the, and the line goes like this, Highest name of all, you're all you say you are. Highest name of all, you are who you say you are. And if that is true, he deserves our devotion, right? But at the same time, he's my friend. 
so I should treat him like a friend. How do you treat your friends? You don't just pull them out when you need something from them. That's not a friend. A friend reacts to the decisions you make, and God does that. And when you get the combination of those two things, that collision of the two, you get a healthy fear of the Lord. You respect Him as a friend and a Savior. So do you want to become more mature? Do you want to grow as a Christian? If you do, ask yourself, which of these habits do you need a little bit of work on? Okay. Think, think about it for a moment. Do you, is it renewal of the mind that you really need more of? Is it getting with the program, cooperating with God and His training program for you? Is it cultivating a healthy respect, a fear of the Lord? What habit do you need to work on? I just want you to pick one and commit to working on it for a month. It takes about 21 days to form any good habit. Okay, pick one. Just take a moment right now. Close your eyes if you want. If you want to pray and you want to talk to God, feel free to do so. In whatever way it is that you relate to God, that you talk to God, talk to Him about it. What's the one habit that you can hone in on right now and for the next month work on that to develop Christian maturity. Okay, well, let, let's close in prayer if you'll pray with me. Father God, we thank you that you are intelligent, you are smart, and you are caring, that you have a program for us. So I just pray, Lord Jesus, we want to be more like you. We don't want to be ourselves anymore. We want to be like you. We want to be that perfect son, the perfect daughter. So will you come and fill us up? Holy Spirit, I just pray that your mighty working power would come and fill us all up to the fullness of measure, that you would pull us along and create in us a thirst and a hunger to chase after you, to run that race and get that prize of Christ in us. I bless all of you in the name of Jesus. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.